Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, listeners, to Art Fair Radio. This is Connie Mettler, publisher of ArtFairCalendar.com, the number one Google-rated site for art fairs, ArtFairInsiders.com, a social networking site for art fair artists, which also has broken up to be number one in its niche, ArtFairReviews.com, where you will find reviews of art fairs for artists from artists, and CallsForArtists.com, the one place online to find shows all over the country, looking for artists. Our topic today is pricing and marketing your art. Stay tuned to learn how the art market has changed, what you can do about it, how to price your art, and tips for building a long-lasting career in art. My guest today is Barney Davey, and he has so much information. I hope you're ready to start taking notes, because even though this is recorded and you can hear it again, taking some notes will help. Barney Davey has advised visual artists since 1988 when he began his career with Decor Magazine and the Decor Expo trade shows. He attended too many, according to him, ABC shows, Art Expo, Professional Photographers of America shows, Decor Expos, to count over the years. In 2005, he published his first book, the 300-page How to Profit from the Art Print Market, It's been ranked on the Amazon.com Business of Art and Prince categories ever since. He also publishes the widely trafficked and well-respected ArtPrintIssues.com blog, where you can find nearly 500 art business and art marketing posts. Welcome, Barney. It's great to talk with you today. Hi, Connie. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you. Well, my audience is, I, I know, is going to be thrilled with the information you're going to bring to them today. Everyone is pretty worried these days, even the people who've been doing well. It seems like um, things are drying up once again, and they're concerned about earning their living with their art. So I'm really pleased and flattered that you would spend time with us today to talk about ways that the artists can do this. And as we talked before, Barney, it's not just all about making art. What else is it about? It's about getting your art sold. It's you know making art is one thing, but if you don't have a way to find collectors, what you have is a pleasant pastime. <laughs> if you want it to be a business, you have to treat it like a business, and that means you have to allocate a certain amount of time every week and possibly even every day. But you need to have a schedule that you adhere to that includes adequate mind, adequate time to put into marketing your art, and you need to be smart about how you go about doing that so you don't waste your valuable time. But if you don't do that, you're not going to find enough collectors to buy your art. It's as simple as that. Art to be seen, art to be sold has to be seen. That's where marketing comes in. Okay, so that's our manifesto for for the hour that we're going to spend together today, right? That's where we go. So. Okay, so from your bio, it sounds like you've been around the art business a long time. Tell me a little bit about your history. How did you get started doing this? Okay, I went to work for, as you mentioned in the brief introduction there, for Decor Magazine. For those who don't know, Decor sadly went out of business a few years ago after a 135-year run as a successful 
print publication. It, it was older than aspirin, Kleenex, um, cars, electricity in most homes. It's unbelievable the history that magazine had. But it just, like a lot of things, ran aground as we've gone through these massive changes over the last few years. In 1988, I started selling advertising and trade show space for them. And um, I quickly learned that it would behoove me to learn as much as I could from the most successful artists that I was in contact with so I could borrow their ideas and help the newer artists coming in or the less successful say, why don't you try this, do that. I wanted them to be more successful because I care about people. And also, frankly, there was a... um, monetary gain for me. If I could help you be more successful, the likelihood is you're going to come to more shows, buy more advertising, and help me be more successful. So everybody got a little bit from that. And that was, I I worked there for, from 1988 until 2003. I got a great education from some of the most prolific and and successful art artists, self-published artists and art publishers in the business. And exposed you to a lot of people, didn't it? Yeah, and we, I we sub- brain every time I got a chance. <laughs> I know my husband was a 2D artist, and we subscribed to Decor Magazine for at least 20 or so years. And if nothing else, not because we were doing reproductions, but to get an idea of the trends. I mean, you can't ever have too much information when you're in this business. And the art marketing articles were always pretty good, too. So that was I, that's why I really miss Decor, right? I, I so, do, too. Uh, yeah. And I, I say, just you're a perfect example of what I, I preach, and I preach about a lot of different things. But I say, if you want to be successful, you need to be a student of the business. You need to have your finger on the pulse of what's going on, even if it's kind of secondary to your main thing like it was for you with Decor. Here's a magazine that's full of great information. I, I used to say, my, um, you know, many people read it because they wanted to see the ads, what the prices were, what the themes were, the color schemes. The, and they were the articles were almost secondary to the advertising as a source of information. But you have we, to study, right. you have to access it. You have to, and even though it was compared to the work that we were doing, it was very commercial work. It was still on trend, and it showed you what was selling and what people were interested in buying, and you could get lots of information from it. So, thanks for your years there, and there we go from there. So you got started in art marketing consulting um, because you were trying to help these people who were actually buying the advertising space at the, at the shows, right? And and you yeah. met them there. So, mm-hmm. and so well, some of the cha- what are some of the changes that you see that are different today that are affecting artists? Okay, well, some of the changes are the same things that are affecting all kinds of other businesses. But there's been a, a one wave after another, each one of which could have, you know, put. It did put the art market and many other businesses on their heels. The changes in consumer buying habits, we're all buying things online. You know, who who would have thought a few years ago that a a company like Zappos could be a billion-dollar company selling shoes online? I mean, shoes, it's – you. Think and their shoes are—they're not even bargains. <laughs> they're no, good. It's, they're it's, full it's, price. It's not like Amazon. Yeah, right. But <laughs> right. Um, you know, but you—you you think shoe buying is a personal experience? I have to try it on and like it, and they—they've overcome that, and they've overcome consumer resistance to it, and it's a perfect example of how people have become quickly attuned to buying online. And just looking at Zappos, and that's just one factor. There, uh, the rise of e-commerce. Um, the uh, automation of art, the influx of very 
inexpensive and increasingly better Chinese oil paintings. Um, that's kind of a phenomenon that's been covered by the Wall Street Journal and CBS News. There are whole villages in China where people paint, and it's become a it's become a, a mecca of a tourist trap for people in Asia to go to these art villages and watch people make these paintings that are shipped over by the boatload to the U.S. and it, that's put a dent in the art market. So all of these different things combined together have. Um, you know, they put Decor, 135-year-old magazine, out of business. The, the Internet has as much to do with it as anything, in, in my opinion, and, and all the changes that have come out of the Internet. And you can either embrace that and say, that's really rotten, and be, be sad about it, or you can say, okay, things have changed. I'm going to figure out a way to use some of the good things that have come out of the, these changes, and those would include the easy affordability to market direct to consumers who are more inclined to buy from you directly than they were before. So you've got to look on the bright side, take what you can from it, and move forward. Right. My, my last podcast was about websites for artists. I mean, you've got these things are there. You have got to embrace them, and you have to turn over every stone. And um, find the new stuff, find, figure it out, and use social media. Even though it doesn't sound like it's going to bring you money, it's, you got to be there. You've got to be part of it. That's right. I'm totally. I'm well. Obviously, I've turned my business is totally an online business. And who who would have thought right. I, this would happen in my life? But there there it is. Social media is important. Uh, on one of my sites this this week, it was pretty interesting. Some a person was stealing, was passing bad checks at a show, and all over northern Minnesota. And the artists all banded up on the site, and they exposed her and went to the police and got their money back. It was. Shocking! It was happened on this yeah, website. Right, like, there's the, the power was, of the internet. There's positive power of the internet. It's, yes, you know, it, it was it, quite a surprise. Yeah. So, but that so that is you know we we all you and I are both totally sold on that. So we I have several questions here from you here, and I guess, um, boy, I I really would like to know what what you had this idea about warm markets and cold markets. What what is what do you mean by the term a warm market? Okay, I I'm um, social media is I I coined a frame. Uh, I'll get to your answer here, but let me just okay uh, preface it with something for uh, from social media. I coined a phrase called strafrangers, and it's to it's a it's a way to describe anybody who likes you, follows you, friends you, or in, a, in some other way digitally and relatively anonymously makes a connection or some kind of digital relationship with you on the Internet. My take is I would take one person from a warm market that I know that was introduced to me through my church, through my children's school, through through my mailman or the waitress at the cafe. I would take one person like that over 100 or maybe even 500 people that, you know, friend me on Facebook. And so I think artists are missing the point today. As much as I love social media and I'm totally sold on the fact that you have to have a presence there, I think that you can build a core business of collectors in your warm market. I, I honestly believe that you can be successful without social media, that you don't have to be there. I don't think I think you need a blog and a website, but I don't think you need to be Facebook and Twitter. Those should be icing on the cake. A warm market is everybody that you know and everybody that they know and everybody that those people know. If you just go out three levels 
you are into five, ten thousand, maybe fifteen thousand people that are potentially within two introductions of you. So warm market means how many people do you know? Average person knows about twenty five people really well. So if that's that if that's the artist listening today, and it doesn't matter, it could be hundred and fifty or it could be ten. How many of those people know that you're an artist? Ask yourself that. Then ask how many of those people own your art? How many of those people have you asked to buy your art or to show them your art? How many of those people have some materials from you, a brochure, a flyer, a postcard, that they could use on your behalf to show to other people who might be interested in selling your art? If you're not if you're not working in your own backyard, you're making it twice as hard to go out and try to meet stone-cold strangers on the Internet and sell them something who know nothing about you. And, and, and I know if you're – I did a, a webinar uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and somebody said, I'm in a community of 100, and the next small town is you know, a couple hours away. Well, this doesn't maybe apply so much to that, but most of us live in a, some kind of an urban area where there are people around us. And those people around you are easier to sell to and get introductions to sell to way easier than the you know trying to build an email list and a um, bunch of likes on Facebook and so forth. So I say sit down with your family and your friends and start writing down brainstorm. There's take take the uh, any equation in terms of any, uh, you're not value judging anything. Just start throwing down names. Dentist, doctor, um, people at school—you probably can come up with a hundred or hundred and fifty people that are somewhat related to you that you wouldn't feel totally un- at ease in approaching to say, you know, did you know I'm an artist? Have you ever seen my work? Would I? Can I give you a brochure? Would you like to come to my studio? Whatever it is, you develop a little pattern. The way you do that is by starting close with your, you know, we start with your family first right, if you're not well, comfortable right. with this. Right. It's that old join the Chamber of Commerce and change all, join all those other places and make sure people know who you are. One of the advantages, though, to, Barney, to, to my audience is these are art fair artists, people who are traveling and going out every weekend and meeting face-to-face people who are there to see the art. So they are pretty much meeting a warm market in the next state, wouldn't you say? I would say that's in, I'd say that's great, and then so um, look for ways to get referrals from those people. Then, um, and there's something there's a fancy term called the norm of reciprocity. It what it means is that if you do something for someone, they feel obliged to do something for you in return. So if you give somebody an act of kindness, the likelihood that they're going to respond to your request. Um, grow, goes up dramatically, uh, and if you give them a reason why, it even goes up more. Somebody did a study with a person who was uh, going to a, a, a place where there was always a crowd at the copier where people were paying to get copies made, and she asked, um, "Would you mind if I cut in? I've only got five pages." And um, about forty percent of the people um, agreed with that. And then when she changed it to say, would you mind if I cut in, I'm really in a hurry, it jumped up to about 65% of the people. So just by virtue of the way she asked um, and put a reason on to it, it became, um, she got a better response. So if you're going to ask for a referral, don't 
give a reason why. I'm I'm trying to reach out into people. Oh, you're from Minnetonka or you're from St. Louis. I'd love to branch out into St. Louis. Would you mind referring me if there's some people that you know or that I could introduce? I'd be happy to contact them or send them some things. And my, my the norm of reciprocity to me means you give them something. I think the best thing you can give somebody in that situation is um, a, a printed catalog of your work. I know you're probably thinking, oh, my God, that will cost me a fortune. Um, you mentioned write things down. Write this down, magcloud, M-A-G-C-L-O-U-D.com. It's a website okay. run by Hewlett Packard. makes the Jaquay printers and all kinds of other great techie stuff. But you can go to magcloud and upload all your images into a catalog, and you can make the catalog as big or small as you want, and then you can offer it for sale on MagCloud, or you can put a, a price so you can make a profit on it, and you, you can order your own images. Uh, last time I checked, a 20-page catalog um, with 20 minimum order of 20 um, catalogs was about $67. That comes out to about 3 bucks for something mm-hmm. that's now 20 pages that you can give to somebody. When you gift them something like that and then ask them kindly to refer you or whatever it is, you, or introduce you if you know they know somebody, you're trying to net your, work your way to somebody, they're going to be 10 times more inclined to want to help you. And when they go away, they've got something they can show to other people to say, you know, you should get in touch with Barney. You'd love I love this art. Here's an example of what he does. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so, so what was that law called? Mag Cloud, M-A-G-C-L-O-U-D. Right. But before that, you said something about reciprocity. What was? Oh, what was norm. The norm. The norm of norm of reciprocity. I love I love those big worms. Norm of reciprocity, and <laughs> and know, it means we all know yeah. We but we do know what, right. Yeah, we know it intuitively. If if um, um, somebody does something for you, gives you a cut in line or hands you a free Coke or something, you feel obliged to them. So now when they <laughs> ask you something else, you, you're more inclined to want to help them than if they just came up stone cold and say, hey, can you help me? So give a little and get a lot is right. what that comes down to. And if you're doing that, go, this works not only for referrals but in networking. They're kind of synonymous things. But you're an artist out there meeting people at these shows Take advantage of that. Ask them questions. Find out a little bit about where you're from, what do you do. Get get them to talk about themselves and then use whatever you hear from them to say, turn it into your little pattern. I'd, I'd love to break into that market a little deeper. Do you know some people? Do you know, are there some galleries or are there some other collectors that you know that might be interested in my work? I'd be happy to send it to them, tell them you said it, or I can give you whatever it is, you know. You you work it out. You do what's natural and comfortable for you. I guarantee if you continue, if you do that on a regular basis, you're going to grow your audience and you're you're going to grow the people who are interested in you and you haven't spent a nickel of, uh, of money or an hour, an hour of time on on uh, social media to make that happen. It's all people to people. It's it's word of mouth marketing. There's nothing more powerful. It's nothing more powerful, and and that is, of course, one of the people who are d- devoted to doing these fine art juried shows. They, this is an advantage they have. I mean, any weekend that they're at a show, there are all these warm people, 
walking into their booth, stopping and looking, and that's um, so they have they really have a ready-made market, which is pretty wonderful as compared to the people who are trying to well warm calling, I guess, is what you're talking about, sort of rather than cold calling on galleries and and places like that. So they're 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 great places to meet people. I was at a, a show this weekend in St. Louis, and I saw great big art working out walking out of that show, people carrying it. They came to buy big stuff, and it was what, exciting. What was the show? What was the St. Louis Art Fair. The St. Oh, Louis Art I, Fair. I, well, Decor Magazine was located in St. Louis, so and I grew up across mm. the river in Alton, and I went to that show oh. every year that it was there. And it, 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 in my experience, it's going back a few years, that was one of the better fine art shows in the country at the time. It was enough to share. I mean, this... Well, it is up there with Cherry Creek, no doubt about it. It it well, here's the the thing that these the people who are in this. I I, I was at a, a conference last week, and there were a couple of artists on a panel, and they were talking about marketing art. And the first two people both said, "Well, at art school, they told us never to do art fairs. It was way beneath anybody." And lo and behold, many people still do feel that way. But there is plenty of very fine art out on the streets, as, as you, you've probably evidenced. And it's just you have to get those art school professors past that. So my, my gang is, my, my listeners are well past that. They know, like, taking yeah. the art to the people. Right. It's, so they're, it's they're, it's, sorry. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, they're ready to do their marketing. And that's, this is, so they, I guess one of the, because uh, the markets seem to have been really slow, I guess one of the surprises I saw last weekend when I was at this show, I've been listening and listening to my audience over the last couple of years, and they keep saying, you know, we're not making anything in the lower price ranges anymore. We can't sell anything for under $75. Used to be this huge middle class would come by between 50 and $300. They're gone, they're gone. So everything has to be big and expensive. So here I am in St. Louis, I'm walking around, and lots and lots of the work is four figures. And so I said to someone who was my friend, I said, this is heartening to see. He said, but here's the other rub on that. He said, so we're all in the four figures, and now we're competing against each other. We don't even have those other people here because <laughs> everybody has upscaled their work and upscaled their prices to meet this marketplace. So that is that was kind of very interesting to me to think about it because I thought those were the folks who were making the money, but now everybody who is inclined to do that is doing it, and they're now competing against each other more than they used to. So one of the things we talked about ahead of time was um, pricing work, and you seem, you've done some seminars on, on this, haven't you? I, well, I, I wrote the book, How to Profit, or pardon me, How to Price, digital fine art prints um and in in that book it's an e-book in fact it's available on the front of your website um, on artfairinsiders.com lower right yeah. hand side yes yeah um and you can get it as a bonus with uh, my other book how to profit from the art print market it's a really great deal but um <clears throat> i went through I, I created a bunch of questions that I thought were important, and then I went out and found um, nine other um, what I'll call art industry experts, people in the print market or just art advisors or art co consultants. They weren't all in the print market. One of them was, you know, the artist um, 
uh, Daniel Grant, who is a guru of art marketing and art business, who's written some of the best books on, on the business of art that you can find. And he was kind enough to participate. So I asked, is, is, is pricing by the square inch the best method? And what are some of the ways to price prints besides square inch? And we didn't get a consistent answer across the board on most things. We got a variety of different answers, and which was interesting because it, it meant that there isn't a you know a formula. You can't just throw it into an Excel spreadsheet and it's going to spit out the magic number for you. What I came away with more than anything after um, putting the book together and, and sending out those questions and editing them as they came back is that not everybody answered every question. If they weren't comfortable, didn't feel like it. I didn't get 100% participation on every question, but it was surely enough great information in there um, to help artists understand how to price their work. Um, I... I think the Goldilocks rule works great. You want it to be not too expensive, not too inexpensive, but just right. It's very <laughs> similar to, you know, you want it to be the same thing as real estate. You don't ever want to own the most expensive home on the block that nobody else is going to buy because it belongs in the, in the neighborhood two blocks over where the homes are, you know, equivalent price point. And you also don't want to be in a price, in a home it's well underpriced for the neighborhood. You want to be in that sweet spot where people look at the work and think, okay, I'm especially if you're your crowd who's doing art fairs, your those their buyers are exposed to a lot of art at the same time and they're probably like me and many other people like to go to art fairs so you get a better education than the average person who only occasionally buys art or even looks at art. Um, that's, I think, even more important to be in that sweet spot. And that, uh, using the Goldilocks rule and research are the ways to get to, I think, a competitive price point. It, they don't want to underprice. I, see, I seem to see a lot of artists who, especially newer artists, who are a little fearful that I'm not, you know, I need to almost give it away to buy some market share. That's just throwing money away. If you if you overprice, you lose money because you don't get sales. If you underprice, you lose money because you're not getting enough um, profit margin from it. So in, in that sweet spot, and how you get there is you have to find artists who are doing similar kind of work as you, and then put together. You can in this case you could use kind of a spreadsheet. Okay, if I, I've looked at ten artists or maybe twenty that are doing similar work as mine. And it's a whole lot easier now on the on the Internet to do that sort of thing than before. And if you can identify those who are more successful, and again, with the, with the shows, it's probably a little easier because the word travels, this person's doing really well. Well, I would definitely be looking at what their price points are. And if their work is similar to, to mine, then I want to be in their neighborhood in terms of my pricing. You know, maybe I'm a little under to be somewhat competitive with them, but I definitely don't want to be way over them, and certainly not giving the work away at way under them. So that, and and there's certainly artists. Yeah, they're they're continually, uh, if they're not selling well, continually second guessing themselves. My prices are too high. My work is too old fashioned. My work is too avant garde. You know, and this continuous thing of 
trying to be successful, and then looking at other people's prices and then not looking at other people's prices and trying to find that golden mean, right? I mean, it's it's complicated, right? Yeah, right. I can understand the hand wringing. It's you know, it's a lot easier for me to just sit up on a pedestal and bark out these uh, ideas than than make the art and then agonize over. Is, did I do it right? Did I make it the right size? Am I in the right price? Did I, did I use the sunnier color palette or whatever it is that's you know egging you on? My, I, I would say this though. There's a, you know, a Chinese uh, proverb: uh, if, if business is bad, paint the counter. Or if, you know, if um, nobody's responding, change your advertising. And it, it's kind of the same thing with art. If, if you find that um, you've been exhibiting your art for a while and you're pretty confident that you're in that right price point maybe you need to change what you're doing maybe you need to take some influences from somewhere else and and look and say okay who's who's being successful or or even go outside of your art and look at um take some influence there's nothing wrong with taking influences from all kinds of places whether it's uh, the crate and barrel stores or you know even higher end horchow catalogs and look and see, or you know, I used to advise artists take some home tours, go see what mm-hmm. designers are doing these days because they're they're informing these these people spend hours learning what's happening with color, and they they put it up on the walls. They they help you see that you know we're we're moving into seafoam greens and pastel pinks or whatever. You know, I'm not I'm not saying those are the trends. Don't get me wrong on that. But and I'm not saying be a slave to it either, but let those things inform you and help you add maybe a little more color or or even populate um your art with some people if it's just all scenery might maybe putting some people in the background will help it sell better something a minor change that you wouldn't necessarily think was a big deal could make um you know flip the switch for you in a way that you wouldn't have even thought possible. So basically, you're saying always, always be looking and always be changing and always be working for the new idea, following your intuition and the market. Yeah, the Japanese have a term. It's called kaizen, K-A-I-Z-E-N. It means mm-hmm. constant improvement. They actually learned it from some Americans who went over there after the war and taught them the concept of constant improvement. And that's how mm-hmm. we went from in the 50s, where Japanese was the equivalent of junk from China today. Yeah. To right, making, made in Japan, very bad. Yeah, it would, made in Japan at one time was just like that's the worst. That's that's junk. Now they're making Nikon's and Lexus, and you know they have some of the premier brands in the world because they've done Kaizen. They they always are looking at how can I make this better, and they're responsive to what buyers want. It, I, I, there's this balance between being a creative force as an artist and being a marketing person who understands this is what my art this is what my audience is buying they seem to like this color palette they seem to like this subject matter if you find something like that keep mining it it doesn't mean that you're going to be a, i i had a i did a con- consultation with a, a local artist here who does uh, mixed media collages and she uses musical instruments as kind of her um calling card you know it's the central theme and she said i just can't think of being you know how many different ways can i paint a violin or a guitar and i said you're just way you've closed your mind off to this 
you could be doing almost abstracts like a Picasso with a car, or you could be doing, you know, I gave her 15 different ideas because we did a little brainstorming on ways that she could do musical instruments that was way outside of what she was doing now, but still stuck in kind of to her knitting, but at the same time elaborating on what she's doing, but keeping her, her collectors and her galleries kind of in the fold because of that interest, but, you know, branching out on it. And by doing that, she's finding that she's picked up some new kinds of collectors that yeah, she wasn't right. reaching before. But she Expand the market, her. right. She, yeah, Don't she kill, keep continuing going deep into the same place to broaden it, broaden yeah, the market. Yeah, so, so you said a balance between the creative force of the artist and the marketing, is that? Yeah, you're, you're mm-hmm. in business. Come on, yeah. let's, in business. Here, That's what this is. What we're talking about here. We want to be. We are in business. This is, folks. Would you hear this? We're talking about colors and decor and things like that. Well, guess what? What did you tell me earlier about McDonald's, um, De- Barney? I, I said, Mc, I said, Mc, there's a McDonald's on every, you know, in every zip code almost. Or look at Coca-Cola. It's it's arguably the world's most ubiquitous brand. Yeah, I can show you a, a, a silhouette of a Coke bottle, and you can tell me what it is in any language and anywhere in the world. So that can happen. Why why would a brand like that ever need to advertise anymore? Because it because it's what is important. They they know I continually have to remind people to buy from me. There's a there's something called the uh, AIDA. And it stands. It's an acronym for attention, interest, desire, and action. And this is a continuum that describes any sale. It doesn't matter whether you are impulsively walk into a jewelry store, see a necklace, slap down the plastic, put it on, and walk out the door. In ten minutes, you bought that jewelry, that piece of jewelry, and never saw it before. Maybe that happens in an art show once in a while too. Most things don't get sold that way. It, it, it's a commonly thought that it takes anywhere from six to ten touches to move a buyer from. I've first, I've, I've arrested their attention. They're aware of. They're, they've gotten some awareness from my art. I've I continue to market to them. I've gotten them on my mailing list, my emailing list. I I let them know I'm going to be at a show. I've got some interest. They come by the booth again, see what I'm doing. Now they might even move to the point of desire where I just can't get that piece of art out of my mind. I love it. And that's where action comes into place, where they take that final step, put down the plastic, and take home the art. So you, anybody who thinks they can just show once and hope that they can sell like that, it doesn't work that way. I, I've worked in two different retail galleries here in Scottsdale, and I mm-hmm. can tell you that our buyers in both of those places, and they're very different art and very different galleries. One was high-end retail originals. The other was a lot of um, re- retail, but also uh, catered to designers, and we sold prints as well. The, other than the designers who came in knowing specifically, I'm looking for this piece with this color scheme and this size, all the other buyers had to be cultivated, and we kept after them. We had them on our mailing list. We sent them email, we sent them postal mail, we sent them reminders, and constantly did whatever we could to keep our message in front of them, knowing that it takes repeated exposure. So 
it's no different for an artist, a self-representing artist. You have to cultivate your buyers. They don't just fall out of the trees one time. Um, If you expect people to buy the first time they see your art and that's your business model for being successful, that's the equivalent of buying um, lottery tickets and, and using that as a way to fund your retirement. Not a really good idea. Not a good idea. Well, um, I wanted this. We're over halfway through here. I wanted to remind everyone. Uh, I'm. This is Connie Mettler. I'm speaking to Barney Davy, who is an art consultant and also publisher of many many books. And I'm scrolling down my website. I want to make sure I get it exactly right. How to price digital fine art prints, which you can find on Amazon. And you can click on my website and buy it right now. So, okay, so Barney, that's that's all really good information. Um, one one of the things you said uh, when we talked earlier was talked about off, learning to succeed as an artist by offering big. Can you give me an example of what you mean by that, and how does that work? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I. I I've been in I've been in sales for my whole adult life, and for the majority of my um, thirty plus years in sales, I, I made a living on commission. I wasn't on a salary, or I was on a salary that nobody could live on. I had to sell to make my <laughs> to make my daily keep. And you know, um, I semi-retired after I left Decor in two thousand three, moved to Sedona for a few years and got bored and found that Sedona is a nice place to visit, but it's a boring place to live. And it just missed the big city. So my wife and I moved down here to Phoenix and found out, hey, I need health insurance, and I'm tired of paying 1200 bucks a month for catastrophic kind of don't show up unless you're almost dead health insurance. So mm-hmm. I decided to need a job. I went to work for GoDaddy.com, where I'm a marketing um, uh, tech and um, uh, sales and support you call in i'm going to help you fix your email sell you some hosting whatever you need and uh, if you've called there you know we're very helpful very friendly very knowledgeable and we're in most cases going to make I you have, an offer that's true you know mm-hmm. it's a selling operation there so i i was embarrassed to to know but pleased not not so much so that i'm not willing to admit that i learned some things there and one of the things i learned there was um, offer big. If if I if you call in and want a domain for one year, and I say, would you like that for one year? And you say yes, then you buy and you spent twelve dollars. I can just as easily say, would you like a would you like to take the full ten year term, or would you rather go with a standard five year term? And that's a hundred and twenty dollar sale, or whatever sixty dollar sale, or and then if you're only want it for one year, you're going to tell me no one, and it's a $12 sale. But if I only give you the $12 option, I haven't offered big. And I haven't even opened your mind up to the opposite. You might not even know you could buy it for 10 years. And here's the other part of that equation is if you only if you offer the one year because you're doing what I think a lot of artists are guilty of doing now, you, folks, you admit this to yourself, you sell with what's in your wallet. I want you there to click you that right now. 
That's Quit. right. I only only have uh, this is the level that I live in. I can't imagine anybody who could afford my work. So I'm going to price it for people who can afford it, like me, right? Yeah, it's just <laughs> selling just what's in your that. wallet. You're you're costing yourself thousands and thousands of dollars, and you're denying people who have the wherewithal to buy a, a suite of work from you the opportunity because they don't they haven't formulated in their mind that that's even an option. You have to give them the option. So you say, I start with your highest price. Never show somebody your lowest price work. Here's my one-year thing. Here's my here's my grand masterpiece. Show show them your most expensive work. Start there. Here, here's an example um, from a book called Influence by... Um, uh, an author named Robert Cialdini, but he, he there, there was a study of um, a billiard company. For a week, they showed people who came in their lowest price billiard table, which was around three hundred dollars, and then um, their average sale was around four or five hundred dollars. And then the next week, they instead of taking people directly to the lowest price point. They took them to the highest price point, which is around um, $1,100, and their average sale price went up almost double to like $600 or $700. And it was just because they gave a mindset to people. Um, Williams-Sonoma did the same thing. They had a bread maker, and it wasn't selling, and they couldn't figure out why. So they came out with this much more expensive model that only had a few more touches on it than the one that they were trying to sell. The one was like 195 and the other's three and a quarter or something like that. By by just putting them side by side, they started selling the 195s out the door on the, regularly because now people had a point of reference. Oh, I can't really afford a $325 bread maker, but $195 one, yeah, it's in my price point. They had a point of reference. There was there wasn't ever the intention to sell a whole lot of those 325s. If somebody bought one, you know, bonanza. But mm-hmm. it, by virtue of selling, so artists do the same thing. Show your most expensive work first. Be proud of it. Display it, and then you can show other things. The the way you offer big is, you know, so if somebody's got a piece, they've got their eye on a piece. You know, I can put that together in a suite for you. Can you imagine that piece of art? This is the centerpiece. We'll get you two complementary pieces that will dominate any room and make it, or any decor, whatever, however you're putting it, posing, you know, putting it together. And you should develop a little pattern so you can say this naturally, just like you're talking about the weather to somebody. I can put together a little suite for you. We'll do this one piece. It'll look fantastic. We'll have these other two complementary pieces. You don't need to worry about any other art in the room, and it will look fantastic. And I'll get you a great deal. Normally, that all all three of those would be whatever seven thousand, nine thousand dollars. Let's put, we'll put it in a package for you and get it to you for eight thousand. Would you like to do that on your credit card, or you want to, or can I deliver it? <laughs> well, you know? Close that sale, baby. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just how would and, you? Yeah. Let me add one more thing to that because it kind of all goes in line. Um, once get that pattern down, practice it. Get in the mirror and practice it. Learn how you're going to say this so that it just comes out naturally, and including the price. Don't 
you know, let them know. This is what it is. (laughs) Once you ask them, you have to be quiet. You, I don't care if you're trembling in your shoes. I don't care if the buyer waits five minutes sitting there thinking about it. Do not say another word. The next person who speaks in that conversation is the one who is going to lose in the transaction. And I don't mean to put that buyers are losers. I'm just saying that if you next say, you know, um, and I can also do this, or you say anything at all, you give that buyer an opportunity to, You've disrupted their thinking about them buying, and you've given them an opportunity to slide off. Oh, think about it. So you right. offer and be quiet. Learn to stand comfortably if you need to. Put your hands behind your back and raise your fingers up and down your hand. Whatever out of their sight or wiggle your toes or whatever. Stand there calmly. Hold your ground. These You're talking to adults. You've made a big offer. You've presented a price. They're going to say, yeah, I'd love to have that domain for 10 years. I didn't even know it was possible. The only thing you have to do at that point is, or I'd love to have that suite. Can I? Can you deliver it or however it is? It hadn't even crossed my mind that I could do that. What a great idea. So, yeah, right? you, the only other thing you have to learn is not to let your jaw drop when they say yes. And <laughs> I, I guarantee this will work. If you offer big... It's not going to work every time, but so what? If it only works one out of ten times and you sell, you sell three pieces to one person, you've identified a potential great buyer for other things. That person probably knows people who are in the same wealth category as they are. They're going to become a proponent of you. That's somebody you definitely want to give that MagClub catalog to. You want to you know, put them on your preferred buyer list and work your way into their inner circle to sell more art. So it, there, there's a rain or a halo effect from that. It's not just that you made a big sale at the show or wherever in the gallery. It's that, that you have identified somebody who could be uh, what um, Malcolm Gladwell in his book Tipping Point called a, a connector, somebody who knows somebody who can connect you to somebody else who's also in the you know has the disposable income to buy your art. So. Right. Um, Malcolm bid. Gladwell. Malcolm really says it right. He's got all the ideas. He puts it together so well that you can remember and quote him, even if you're not a great reader, doesn't he? And he that that's that tipping point, making the connections, putting people together, knowing who knows who. That's that is so correct. I love that idea. I've seen it happen. You know, when they talk about negotiating or um, when you're trying to get somebody to do something that you want, don't want them to do, that you also use that technique then. So it's not only for sales, is it? No, it isn't. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned negotiation because I think artists undervalue or don't even have it on their radar screen that they are negotiators. You negotiate for everything. You negotiate for what position you're going to have in the show. You might even be, you know, when I was at selling trade show space at Decor um, Expo, the the price was negotiable depending on what else you were doing, buying advertising, how many shows you were in, how many booths you were going to buy. You were negotiating for all of those things with us. You negotiate for um, studio space. You negotiate with suppliers. You negotiate with galleries. You negotiate with... Um, buyers, if you're not negotiating properly, if you haven't given yourself at least the opportunity to read a book like the the Getting to Know is a very good one, um, at least read one book on negotiation. 
that alone will probably um, give you an, an additional 5 or 10% income over the course of your lifetime, which could be tens or thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousand dollars to your advantage just because you know how to negotiate or have some basic skills in it. Right. I used to, when we were doing the shows, I, I had a whole shelf full of books on sales, and I read them, and I would pump myself up before a show, be ready with the sales and the information. So this is all really good information. We don't have a lot of time left, um, Barney, and this is a lot of good information. But one, one of the things that I want to talk to you before we wrap it up is um, I have your book on my website, How to Price Digital Fine Art Prints, and people can go to my site, artfairinsiders.com, click on it, and go and see what, what all um, Barney has to offer here. But my uh, this audience that I'm... Um, with a lot of most of these people make original art, but some people make gicles, which is that word synonymous with fine print to you? Gicle? It's yes and no. Gicles, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, well, so you know, so that's since that is one of your specialties. Tell me what. Tell my audience what you were telling me beforehand about making prints or gicles, fine prints. Tell me, please. Oh sure. Um, First of all, some people have an attitude that, you know, I, I, the reproduction market's not for me or it'll ding my reputation. Um, no, it won't. It'll only ding your reputation if you let it ding your reputation. You know, Picasso sold uh, open edition prints in Sears stores in the 1950s. I don't think it dinged his reputation any. There are, you know, Andy Warhol was in prints. You can do prints and, and it, it will not ding your reputation there's an artist i write about in my book called his name is euros y-u-r-o-z and he's he made um hundreds of thousands of dollars a year selling uh fine art digital prints at shows like art expo he's now collected by the vatican he's in numerous other galleries museums around the world it hasn't hurt him he's a contemporary artist being in the print market has not hurt him. In fact, it's made him more widely known, and it's certainly given him the opportunity to have a, open up a whole new source of revenue that would not have been available to him had he not done that. So, um, don't. I know some of you won't buy into this, but I've seen it over and over and over again, where you can have integrity. You can make really beautiful price but prints at, at price points that you're that you uh, can't sell to your originals for. If you have, if you're making, if you find that your originals sell well and that you have a hard time keeping up in the demand for, it, you're an ideal person for the print market, and that opens you up even into the licensing market. So if you're interested in taking it to the next step, so that you want to get into licensing, where you might end up on note cards or stationery or um, other things, then that's a whole other source of income for you. There are people that are multimillionaires as a result of being in the print market and or into the licensing market. You don't have to shoot hasn't, to be in a multimillionaire. Kind of, hasn't that market kind of um, been failing just like the many other markets lately, or is it still Every, strong? Yeah, it, well, it, nothing's like it used to be. You know, that's why <laughs> Art Expo's down on Pier 92 instead of in the Jacob Javits Center. In the Javits. You know, another thing that broke my heart because I went, I was in all of those shows for 
the late 80s up until the you know mid 2000s at the Javits Center where was a phenomenal exciting place to be to see all this wonderful art and all these great you know exhibitors and and just this this palpable sense of excitement of something really cool and happening there it, it's still going on but it's it's on a lesser level and and part of it is that people's buying habits have changed they don't need to go to new york to see a show to get ex- to learn about somebody's art so i think you can use what I was talking about before with the warm market, and then if you if you have once you've kind of developed that, then use that to lever yourself into um, a greater regional presence, or even national or international presence, and use all the tools that you have to learn how to sell direct. Now, if you can sell direct, and you're not selling with the a gallery or some other partner taking a big cut out of what you're doing you can sell you can sell fewer pieces and make the same amount of money and the the beauty of the print market today is that you don't have to have an inventory and you this is way underserved in my opinion this is customer friendly make art to the specification don't don't put it in limited editions i i am not a big fan of that Put it in open editions. That way you can put it in, they need an 8x10, they need a 16x20 or whatever. You give it to, you give that buyer what they need. They're going to come back and buy more from you because you can supply their needs than you saying, yeah, it's only available in 24x36, take it or leave it. That doesn't make any sense. It's a digital print. I can make it any size you want. What would you like? I'd be happy to do it for you. It completely turns that around and, and it makes this unique one-off service so much more customer friendly. How wh- how would you like it? I'll give it to you. You want it on paper? You want it on canvas? You want it gallery wrapped? You want it in a frame? I just want you to own the art and have it and, and love it and, and live with it. And I'll give it to you the way you like it. So what? I, what? In conclusion, you would say that being an artist is being in business. You would hope. <laughs> well, well if, again, if art art that's not sold, you know, uh, production minus sales equals scrap, and art that's not sold is a is a hobby. If you want it to be a business, you have to treat it with respect, like a business. There's no two ways around it, and there's nothing wrong. People have uh, some misconception about I'm selling out. You're selling who's. Selling out to who? Who's who, who's the boss of selling out? Show me that guy that's going to you know proclaim you as selling out. What your friends? What their opinion doesn't matter. Nobody's opinion matters. It's just your opinion of yourself, how you hold your head up high and work, walk through the world with integrity with everything that you do. If it includes selling prints or being smart at business, so what? That's you. Do it with integrity, authenticity, and you will be successful in spite of what anybody else thinks because their opinions, frankly, don't matter. only thing that matters is your buyers and your own opinion. Everybody else, out of the pool. <laughs> okay, that sounds great. That's, that sounds like a good wrap-up. I appreciate it. Do you have one last? In, that sounds, I don't, I don't even have to ask you for something last unless you have some <laughs> pearl of wisdom. <laughs> Barney, that was, um, that's I, the speech. You know, I mean, that's the speech, right? We all are responsible for our own lives. And what? how is it that you're going to live your life? And are you going to be an artist or are you going to have a basement full of work that no one's bought? Yeah, don't there. let anybody dictate it to you. 
don't let anybody dictate it to you. Make cut your own path. There are plenty of other people who are being very successful and w- widely honored at the same time, and you can be one of them. It's you know prestige is just an opinion. People thought jazz was a terrible form of art at when it first came out, and if if everybody that was in jazz would have taken that, you know, let them be beat down by it, jazz would not be what it is today. One of the most refined forms of art in music today so just you know ignore opinions they're like a nose everybody's got one (laughs) okay okay i wanted to say thanks thanks so much i've been speaking to barney davy who has been who's an art consultant you can find his uh he's got a fabulous well-trafficked blog at blog at artprintissues.com and you can buy his book, How to Profit from the Art Print Market, in case you need some more of that information. He also has webinars and has knows lots and lots about the business of making a living selling art. Uh, I want to thank you. Uh, thanks to our guest, Barney. I want to tell you all we have many more interesting shows in the works with some of the nation's top show directors and artists and art consultants. I've got so many ideas. I was at the Zap conference last week and picked up some whole bunch of new people. I want you to stay tuned. Our next podcast, though, we'll be speaking with sculptor Ted Gall and pastel artist Jody DePue McLean about how they have built their careers at the juried art fairs across the country, and they will have great tips for you. We're speaking here from the top. So, uh, in ending, I'd like to say, please give me some feedback on the show at artfairinsiders.com. There is um, on the podcast page where I announced this show. I'd, I'd appreciate your thoughts, comments on the topics that I've chosen, about the guests. Do you have any questions or even technical points like the audio levels and promotion of the show? Also, if you like these podcasts and you'd really like to do me a favor, could you go to iTunes and find our podcast there and give us a like there? We really could use that feedback, too. So we're going to make this really easy. Here's what I want you to do. Visit the AFI podcast page, comment, leave a discussion for feedback. And I love talking to you and sharing this information with you. Till the next time, visit ArtFairInsiders.com. Tell your friends about us, like us on Facebook, and go out, create, and make money. Goodbye. Bye-bye.